Here's the 2 1. That's hit in the end Tavares off the bench and he's tied it. That swing chases Machi. And Tavares, who had only three home runs in over 230 at bats in the big leagues, takes a curtain call here in the seventh inning of game two. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Prospect to be Named Later. I'm your host, Colin Garner, and I'm joined tonight, as always, by the great and one and only Kyle Reese. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? <laughs> Hello, Colin. How are you, my friend? I'm, I'm doing very, very, very well. I'm doing great. So the Cardinals rebounded from a miserable, miserable first two games in Milwaukee to earn a split. Uh, Austin Warner is making his double-A debut. There's a lot going on right now, but what we want to start off with tonight is the upcoming decision with Monday's start of whether it's John Gant, Daniel Ponce de Leon, or Dakota Hudson. Um, I think we both agree that there's been a lot made about this start where not necessarily all of it's deserving. So just to give you some background, I'm probably the biggest Dakota Hudson fan of anyone who seriously follows Cardinals prospects. Uh, about a year ago, I wrote a piece talking about how Dakota Hudson could help the Major League bullpen when they're having their problems this time last year. And, you know, looking back on it, that might not have been the wisest uh, piece to write. You know, he wasn't striking anybody out. Um, he never been above double-A. It was his first full professional season. All that stuff. Cardinals probably made the right decision. But now this year, Dakota Hudson's done a lot of things to improve on those questions last year where he's in triple-A. He's pitching really well. Kyle saw him the other night. He pitched really well. He has a really low ERA. He's striking out more hitters, although he's not striking out a ton of hitters. So when I say that I'm 100% okay with the Cardinals rolling with John Kent, I think that carries some weight because I understand – the decision because you don't have to put Dakota Hudson on the 40 man. And I think that's really what it boils down to. I'm not sure if Daniel Ponce de Leon's on the 40 man. Uh, well, of course he is. He was up for a um, yeah. minute. So uh, he is on the 40 man. Um, at that point, I think it just comes down to John Gantz made some major league starts and Ponce de Leon hasn't. And so, you know, the guy who's been there before, albeit briefly, go with him. I love Dakota Hudson. Dakota Hudson's time is coming. I'm sure he is as impatient or – She's definitely more impatient than anybody on Twitter or anybody listening to this podcast. But um, I think rolling with Gant's fine. I don't think it's a big deal. They don't want to burn a 40-man spot when they've uh, had that come back and bite them in the offseason before. Uh, but, Kyle, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I personally root for Daniel Ponce de Leon. So I, I was hoping, uh, especially with the scripted start late last week, that he'd end up getting the start on Monday. Uh, but, you know... Obviously, the Cardinals are going to go with the 40-man decision. And if they don't have to make a 40-man decision, then they're not going to make a 40-man decision. And with Ponce de Leon and Gant, they didn't have to. And that's why Hudson, part of the reason why Hudson gets passed up. Uh, I just personally, because of the story and because he got called up and he wasn't used, I very much would have liked to see Daniel Ponce de Leon get the start. But I, I do, you know, getting past my own bias, I, I do understand and I do like the fact that John Gant's going to get a chance to get another start. He's... He's been good at the major league level. He hasn't been extraordinary, but I think it's important for the Cardinals to utilize and find out, you know, at least for maybe a couple starts, what John Gant is. And 
so good at Memphis this year, and he was better at Memphis, and he's been better in the majors. It could be argued than than Hudson has at AAA. Uh, I, it just I think it would have been a great opportunity to use Daniel Ponce de Leon, and it seems like Ponce de Leon might be in a position where they could call upon him if Gant falters. Uh, same thing with Hudson. Uh, I just it, it makes sense to go with Gant first. Yeah, I'm super intrigued by the idea. Uh, I think somebody on Twitter, I can't remember who pointed out that Gantz had a lot of trouble in first innings. And, you know, the Brian Kinney's whole thing with the openers caught on pretty big this year. And uh, I think the Angels did it with uh, Romero or maybe the Rays. I can't remember who it was uh, using a reliever in the first inning. I think I'm intrigued by that because it's new and it's, it's probably stupid and no one should ever do it. But I do think there's something to the fact that Gantt, has pitched well, there's just always that one three or four run inning in each of his starts that where, you know, he ends up on the wrong side of the decision, partly because of the bad inning, but also partly because the Cardinals offense hasn't scored a whole lot of runs. But I think the idea of how successful he's been in Memphis has really, really been overlooked. I do too. I think that's, uh, I think that's the gist. And because he's not, you know, he's not a sexy player, you know, he doesn't, he was acquired as one of three players for Jaime Garcia, and we kind of blew him off from the get-go. And the two things that you think of when you think of John Gant uh, is his hair, and you think about uh, the delayed, um, you know, the, the two-step wind-up, which he doesn't have anymore. And because of that, it's he's just not exciting. Yeah, yeah, and it, but he's like the prototypical guy the Cardinals would call up to make a spot start or to hold down a spot in the rotation two or three times to through. And I do think that if they thought, I wouldn't say I think, but do you think if the Cardinals thought Walker's injury was going to be long-term, that they would be more inclined to go towards Hudson? I don't. Not initially. I think I really do think that because of uh, the unknown quantity that is Ponce de Leon, and because of what John Gann has done when he's been at the major league level, I think that they would have gone with one of those two from the get-go, even if Waco was going on a 60-day DL. Um, I just I think that they would be a little quicker to add Hudson if whichever one of their first options, and then in this case it's Gant, uh, like was terrible from the get-go. I, I think that they would adjust quick, whereas this time they might, you know, uh, they might play around with that decision. Uh, as compared to how aggressive they might otherwise be. That's interesting. It's amazing how quickly, you know, this time last year and in the offseason, it looked like we had such a logjam of pitching along with the logjam of outfielders. And then you trade two of them away, you have a couple injuries, and now all of a sudden you're, I don't want to say scraping the bottom of the barrel because you still have prospects, you still have Hudson and Helsley and, and, and some good quality arms in the minor league system, but it's a much worse situation than it looked like you could possibly be in at this point last year. It looked like last year we just had so many guys. Um, I mean, now, and, you know, Gomber's in the bullpen. He's not an option to start because he's in the bullpen. Um, but I know you saw Hudson and pitch in Memphis and a couple other Cardinals or former Cardinals prospects, Sandy Alcantara and uh, Zach Allen, and when you're in Memphis down as well, just kind of, you know, what did you see when you were in Memphis? What stood out to you uh, seeing some of those guys in person that we watch on TV a lot? I hate to keep plugging it, but if, if you live in the St. Louis area and you like the minor leagues, like you're in, you're in a great spot. I'm in a great spot. I'm two and a half hours away from Peoria. 
I'm two and a half to three hours away from Springfield, and I'm three to four hours, depending on how fast I'm If you're I'm making that drive from. to Springfield in two and a half hours, you are flying, my friend. Man, I got to tell you, my friends in high school, or in college, rather, uh, from high school to college, they used to laugh about me hitting a portal driving from Spring, St. Louis to Springfield because I would get there in two and a half hours. I wouldn't go, like, any faster than 85. I just always picked the right time to get down there without, like, impediments. And I would never get stuck in, like, uh, uh, work zones or anything like that. I would always get down in, like, two. And even crazier than that is I got down to Memphis in, like, three and a half hours. And I got home from Memphis in, like, three and a half hours. And that's, like, a four-hour-and-a-half four uh, drive. And I, I never went faster than 87. Like, I, I might have hit 90. Let me rephrase that. I might have hit 90 for, like, a total of a half an hour. But I never drove like faster than 87. I just, I get lucky. I choose the right time to leave and I hardly ever have to click off cruise control. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm lucky. And now I've ruined it because we've talked about it. <laughs> that, that is but, the uh, way those kind of things work. And like 87 and sometimes touching 90, that's like a Jeff Supon start right there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm driving as fast as <laughs> Jeff Supon could throw. <laughs> I like that. I'm driving Jeff Supon speed. Uh, so, I bring that all up because if you're in the St. Louis area, then you should definitely embrace the fact that you can make easy trips to see the affiliates because Memphis is a perfect trip. I stayed at the Holiday Inn, which was just right across the street from the ballpark, uh, a five-minute walk to Beale Street. And the awesome thing about all of the minor league parks is that they're they're perfect for, like, they're equal parts perfect for families in bachelor parties. <laughs> you know, and the they're cheap and they're affordable. And tickets are affordable, and you get to screw around. And it's just—it's a perfect atmosphere. And you know, I—I I got to experience Memphis in a press capacity, which is different, of course, than either family or bachelor party. Uh, but it was just—it's—it's it's a beautiful stadium with beautiful uh, surroundings and a lively atmosphere. And uh, you know, it, it, moving on to Hudson from that. There are still certain things that Dakota Hudson does that make me understand why the organization might be a little unwilling to promote him right away. And not, well, I guess not right away because he's been in the organization now for two, you know, two full seasons, uh, two and a half measured seasons. Is he still works behind an account more than you would like your starter to? Uh, I don't know the percentage. I didn't go back and look, but I felt like he was working behind a lot last night. And he also nibbled. And Colin, part of the reason that you were bullish on using him in the uh, in the bullpen last year, if the opportunity would have would have presented itself, is because of how good his stuff is. And I feel like he nibbles with his stuff, even though his stuff is so good. And maybe it's just a control command issue, which I don't think it is. I just think he's he's overly protective of himself, and I just want to see him get more aggressive, like. Uh, it's going to sound crazy, but I want to see him leave his fastball over the middle more often instead of, you know, trying to be early in account, instead of trying to be cute with it on the outside corner to a righty. Like, those are the two areas that I see. I just, he's, he can be powerful, and he hasn't been powerful yet, at least in Memphis and what I've seen, even though he's been good. And he hasn't, like, he hasn't asserted himself early in counts. And that was... And, but that, that goes to show you just how good he is. You know, last night he pitched eight innings. He let up one earned run, and that run came in the ninth inning after he let up two singles to start the inning, and then Edward Mujica, Mujica came in and did Edward Mujica 
18 things. He, it's just like, he's a bulldog. You know that from interviewing him. And it's just like that bulldog isn't on the mound. It's everywhere else. Frankly, when I interviewed him, you just got the vibe that he didn't give a shit about the interview. The only thing he wants to go do, wanted to go do, was go pitch. And I was just interrupting his process to pitch as well as he possibly could every fifth day. That's the vibe I got. And I love that. Um, as a fan, I don't necessarily love that as someone trying to interview him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, okay, so here's my question. I saw an article. Derek Gould talked about how um, how he's added a curveball. And I'm just curious. So as someone who has watched him from the moment he was drafted, where I sort of jumped in a year ago, when he was drafted, I remember talking about the slider, the slider, the slider. It was sort of like Griffin Roberts where he had that one devastating pitch. And now it seems to be, it's more, it's at least the description of it, has turned into a cutter. And now he's adding a curveball. Has anything actually changed or is just the way we're describing it changed? No, no. So this is, this is a really, really unique situation. What the article was about, and this is, this is where it ends up being a total mind F, the article was about him adding a slider. Now, I thought he one, had a nasty slider. I thought that's why they drafted him. So, and this is this is again where it gets into the semantics of baseball, and where it gets really difficult uh, at the minor league level to evaluate from like our standpoint. He was drafted, and it was said about him that he had one of the best sliders in the draft: slider cutter, slider cutter, slider cutter. He, he's always throwing a curveball. It's loopy, and it's it's somewhat ineffective, but he uses it in an effective manner. And he has fastballs. I think he throws a two-seamer. I think he throws a four-seamer. It's, like a, it's uh, like a 2013 Waka curveball, basically. Yeah, yeah, except for, you know, Waka's, Waka's would go flat. His, like, I don't, it's, it's a little different. It's hard to explain. Like, his is more 12 to 6. It's just, you know yeah, it's coming. Yeah, but it's coming, like and, almost sort of useless because hitters can pick up on it so well. That's that my my read on it. Although for whatever reason he utilizes it well, again it's one of those things where he utilizes it well when he uses it in the minor leagues. But I can't imagine it being something he'd be able to utilize effectively at the major league level. Um, getting back to the whole slider cutter thing, so he has the best slider in the draft, best slider in the draft, best slider in the organization. You see it, you think, oh, that's a slider. Well, to him, it's a cutter. It's always been a cutter to him. And now he throws, and you know, one of the things in spring training we learned is that he threw that cutter and he would grip it with like different pressure points uh, to to manipulate it, to throw it with different speeds and to throw it with different cut slide. Well, now he throws something that he grips different than his cutter that he's calling a slider. And it's he's throwing it in addition to how he's manip- manipulating his cutter. So he's still throwing the, the curveball. Uh, but he's using a cutter, a true cutter-slider uh, combo with his fastball. And it's a total, total, you know, S-storm of trying to figure it all out. Uh, because if you're looking at, like, Brooks baseball data or fan graphs, the cutter and the slider are the same thing. It, so, but they, they won't be from here on out. Okay, that it's really weird. You're right. Like the the semantics of baseball are weird because you could see a pitch, and like as a catcher, I've experienced this where like 
someone throws a pitch, to me it looks like a slider. It moves like a slider. It's more uh, east and west than it is north and south. And so, like, I'm like, want to call that as three. Every You call a slider with the, is a third sign. But the pitcher thinks that they're throwing a curveball. Like, they throw it like a curveball. It just moves like a slider. And so Hudson, I guess, probably has this situation where he thinks cutter, but it moves like a slider. And so he tells everybody he throws a cutter. And then people who are watching who don't talk to him think, he's got a damn good slider. And uh-huh. It's just, yeah, it's just the semantics of baseball are, are really, really can be funny that way. And it's even one of those things where if you told him, like, no, you're throwing a slider, that's probably not good because – the way he thinks about it, when, as far as I know, as far as I understand, when pitchers throw a cutter, it's mostly they grip it and then they just throw like a fastball and they let the movement happen. And so that's probably what he's doing. And if you try to get him to throw the same pitch like a, you know, a quote-unquote slider, it would completely change the pitch for – as good as that pitch is, it wouldn't be a change for the for the better. I, I agree. One of my quick favorite stories, and a lot of people don't realize this, uh, one of the players that the Cardinals were involved in potentially drafting at 19 overall was an Ole Miss pitcher named Ryan Rolison. He's a lefty. And in all of the draft research, draft research I did, he threw a curveball. Curveball, 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 curveball. And then in the College World Series game, or the prelims prior to the College World Series game, I watch, I'm watching the game. And he grips his pitch, and he calls it a slider. He's fastball changeup slider. He's showing the television. And the TV broadcast still continues to call it a curveball. His coach calls it a curveball. But to him, it's a slider, a slider grip, even if it breaks like a curveball would for a lefty. And it just goes to show you that until you get to the major leagues, and honestly, these pitches are defined uh, by movement, like, it doesn't... It doesn't matter. Like, it makes sense to just call the curveball the breaking pitch or the slider the breaking pitch, change up an off-speed pitch, because you just there, – there's no way of telling until the data is presented to you. Right, and it's so, it's so weird because I wonder what the difference is with, like, the computer that, that determines that. Because when you're watching on GameCast, Greg Holland will throw a 79-mile-per-hour slider – and then he'll throw a 78 mile per hour curveball. And if you're watching on TV, it's the same exact pitch. But there, yeah. it's right on that borderline of the of the algorithm to where it classifies one as a slider and one as a curveball. It's really weird and it really confuses a lot of people, I think. So if, from what I understand, it's a combination, uh, at least for the algorithms currently. And I listened to uh, Zach Gifford and STL Cup of Joe, Joe Schwartz, uh, talk. They did a little podcast for Birds on the Black where uh, Joe was talking about how Eno Saris, uh for The Athletic is working on a new algorithm uh, to, to like understand how pitchers are hitting their spots. Uh, but from what I understand is that there's like four things that go into it. Horizontal and vertical break are one and two. Pitch release point and pitch speed. And that's like, those are like the four big things that go into the algorithm to decide what the pitch is. So, like with Rollison, he throws his he throws his pitch as a slider. He gets ahead of it, and, you know, and on the side of it, like you would you throw a slider, but it breaks like a curveball. By every measurable metric, it's a curveball, and that's that's what we're talking about here with Hudson. Uh, to him, he throws a cutter. He doesn't throw a slider. Uh, the slider that he's throwing is a little. Uh, to me, it looks 
it looks like a cross between, it looks like a swerve to me more than anything. Uh, and I guess that's working well with this fastball cutter curve combination. Yeah, it's one of those weird things about baseball that nobody really understands, but we all just roll with it and act like we know what we're talking about. So the short season clubs have been underway for, I think, two weeks now or almost two weeks now. Um, for me, who has not had a chance to watch a whole lot of the short season clubs yet, uh, Johnson City is not in my, OB, in my OB TV, so they're kind of out. Um, I watched a little bit of State College when they were in West Virginia because they have a beautiful, beautiful feed. God bless them for actually putting a camera in center field so we could see what's going on. Um, unfortunately, in those games, Delvin Perez wasn't playing, um, so he sat three consecutive games, which initially was red flag to me. He's been playing okay. He's not been playing great. He's been playing f- okay. He's I think he's gotten a hit in every game, but he's only gotten one hit in each game. Uh, so he's hitting like 250. Um, you know, it's been five, six games. You don't really want to read into the stats, but it just seemed like he was playing and that was it. He was just playing baseball. And for the first time since he's been drafted, they were just letting him play and whatever happened, happened. I initially was worried about him sitting three straight games, um, but you, you mentioned there was some sort of injury. What have you seen from Delvin and then also just the, you know, the, the short season club so far in general? I'm just sticking with State College, I, I've gone out of my way to watch every one of Delvin Perez's at-bats, and I've gone out of my way to watch every one of his plays in the field. There are two things that stuck, well, three things that stick out with me. One is, as our buddy Ryan Massey, who wrote for uh, uh, the Redbird Daily a little bit, pointed out, he is, he and nearly all of the State College roster, except for the fifth-round pick Nick Dunn, the second baseman, cannot hit a breaking pitch. It has been miserable watching State College swing at breaking pitches from Wadier Infante to Walker Robbins to my boy Brady Whalen to Delvin Perez. Like, uh, even our boy Lars Newbar. Uh, none of them can hit breaking pitches, and it is overwhelming to watch. If they make contact, it's like infield flies. And Delvin is not an exception to that rule. Uh, the other thing that st- has stuck out with me about Delvin is he has, he's always hustling. That's the one thing we're going to keep an eye on. That's the one thing we're kind of, like, you know, we want to see production, of course. But I, I've seen him aggressively round first base on every one of his hits, uh, almost to the point where he got somebody threw behind him and almost got him out uh, at first. Um, he's hustling. And the other thing is I've seen him bobble two balls at shortstop, and his arm make up the difference. And, you know, you can take that for what that is. It, the one was just a quick little bobble uh, that he, he corralled really quick and threw over to first, uh, got the runner by maybe a half a step. And then the other one was just he had trouble getting the ball out of his glove. He was rushing, and he still got the runner by like two and a half steps. Uh, so, so those are the things that have stuck out with me. Just like everyone in the state college lineup, he's struggling with breaking pitches. Uh, he's, he's hustling. He seems engaged in all of the games, and his arm, his arm at short looks really, really good. I'm just so glad we're actually talking about Del- Delvin playing baseball, and exactly. not Delvin being 19 years old and how he's pouting and throwing fits. Like, I don't really care that he can't hit a breaking ball. I, he wasn't. His hit tool was not the selling point of why we drafted him at 16. 
or why he was supposed to go in the top five. Like that's not why he was why he was so highly thought of. So the fact that he can't hit a breaking ball on the pros, I'm not really worried about right now. He doesn't strike me as somebody who's just going to take a Matt Carpenter type at bat ever. He just doesn't seem like his type of profile. But the, the, the fact that we can finally just let him play, people aren't really paying attention to him. He drops so far down the prospect list. Nobody's really hyperventilating over every game that he plays. The fact that he can just go out there and play and, and have a professional season and hopefully have a lot of positive results and probably some negative results going along there too because if he was having only positive results, he wouldn't be where he's at. That's just so refreshing that we can just finally just evaluate him as a baseball player and not as someone who was drafted in this spot. I agree, man. And, the, you know, the thing is it's going to be tough because the Cardinals have been doing something very unusual with how they've been cycling players in and out of the lineup uh, because they kind of have redundancies at each position and they're trying to get everyone reps. So you'll see, like, you'll see Delvin play three games and then sit three games, and then play two, and then sit three, and then play two, and then sit one. They've been doing it with him and Imelda Diaz. They've been doing it with Nolan Gorman. Uh, it, it seems like they've, they've been doing it with uh, Brady Whalen. It seems like they're doing it with everyone at the, the short season level so far. Uh, so it's going to be hard, and you're going to constantly be wondering, because of Delvin's past, did, is he not playing for three straight games because of his attitude? You know, uh, that makes it even more difficult, but I love the way you, you categorized it. Talking about Delvin, being able to watch Delvin is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Being able to watch Imeldo Diaz and Wadi Infante is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's funny, since the short season clubs have kicked up, I've hardly watched the full season clubs. I, it was nice to be in Memphis this weekend, and I, I went out of my way to watch Springfield all weekend, uh, you know, via MILB TV. But it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting evaluation process for Delvin. And he, he's not flashy right now. There's nothing to get, like, super excited about. And I'm anxious to see what it looks like at the end of the year. I, I love the way you categorized it, Colin. You're, you're, you are magnificently dead on with what you said. Well, I appreciate that. The other guy that I think there's a – I mean, obviously, he's, he was our first overall pick. There's a lot of thought um, that he was going to go higher than 19, and he fell to the Cardinals in 19. Um, he homered in his first game. I think that's the last people have kind of heard from him. I know you can't watch Johnson yeah. City. Um, is there anything I said to you other than the stat lines? Have you have you heard anything from anybody in Johnson City about Nolan Gorman? I I listen. I try to listen. Okay, so here's what I've been doing. I try to listen to the Johnson City games because that's the only way that you can get any information. And I usually, if the broadcast is available, I listen to the opposing team's broadcast. Uh, by the way, a lot of racial undertones going on in that. You, you want to be careful with what you're listening to because sometimes it gets a little pointed, it gets a little weird, and if you're, you're sensitive to that kind of stuff, you're not going to want to listen. Um, that aside, uh, here, here's my thoughts on Gorman. I believe he had a double today, and it just, and it, you know, when they first started inserting him into the lineup, it was a lot of DH, and he's played third, and I believe he's played an okay third. Uh, you know, you haven't heard anything about him making a fool of himself. Um, it just seems like it seems a lot like Dylan Carlson, and I, I just that's a cheap, it's a cop out. Uh, 
it just, he seems like he's handling his own. I don't expect him to like excel to the point where you're like, wow, that guy's impressive. Put that guy in double A. Exactly, exactly. The comparison I made is, aside from Dylan Carlson, is I feel like he's going to put up similar numbers to what Brady Whalen put up at Johnson City last year. So you're talking about like a two. I think he hit. I don't remember what Brady Whalen hit. He hit like two forty, uh, like three fifty, and he had a good slug. And he did that while hitting right-handed, which he can't do, and left-handed. But I, I would expect you'll see something similar out of Gorman, where he hits, you know, 250 with a 350, 340 on base percentage, and like a 900 OPS while hitting, you know, somewhere between five and seven home runs and, you know, a solid amount of doubles. I think that's what you'll see out of Gorman. I think he's doing exactly what the Cardinals hoped he would be doing early on, uh, playing in very the, like the smallest sample size that you could ever imagine uh, at third base. It seems like he's making everything that's hit at him. He's in position. Like those are the things that you want to see out of an 18 year old playing at the Johnson City level. So uh, while there isn't necessarily anything to stand out, he, the, the home run that he hit uh, in his debut was an opposite field bomb. It sounded like a bomb. Uh, again, I was listening to the opposing broadcast. And they made it sound like it was a bomb, which is a pretty good way of substantiating the fact that it was a bomb. Uh, we, I, what I'm getting at is, it seems like it's right on schedule. And keep in mind that right on schedule for an 18 year old is still four or five years out. Right, and I think like if you expect him to be in the major leagues in 2020, that's a little bit. Um, you need to reevaluate your expectations. But um, so when I just kind of blurted out, like, don't put him in Double A. It reminded me of a specific player that I did not want the Cardinals to trade, and that was Terry Evans. Oh, boy. They traded for uh, Jeff Weaver, and, and then he pitched him to a World Series. Um, just for my sake, and if you're listening, I'm really sorry, but if you're listening to this, then you just kind of got to deal with our whims. Uh, just briefly, briefly recap uh, Terry Evans' Terry. career. Terry Evans? <laughs> the outfielder that is Terry Evans? So a while back, the Cardinals had a he hit so many bombs in Springfield. It was unfreaking believable. Yeah. I think I went to three games and saw him hit five home runs. I thought he was <laughs> the best double A player I ever saw until Colby Rasmus. Yeah, keep that in mind. Um, so the thing about Terry Evans is, and what I was going to say is, a couple years back, uh, uh, the Cardinals had a player in the system named Daryl Jones, right? Oh, and they they destroyed that guy in um, Northwest Arkansas. I was at a Springfield-Northwest Arkansas game, and I don't know what he did, but the Northwest Arkansas fans just would, were merciless, would not let him off the hook. No kidding. Oh, it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. That's, that's hilarious. Uh-huh. <laughs> But, you know, the gist with Evans is that he was an athletic, you know, toolsy uh, outfielder who you could kind of project and kind of get excited about. And at the time, when he was going through the Cardinals organization, which, I mean, God, at this point would have been, what, like 2013 through what? I think or, it was uh, before 2000, that, 2003, honestly. I'm like sorry, 2010, I, I 2011? Yeah, 2000, it would have been like, I said 2013. I meant 2003. <laughs> so like, two, I, I, that's one thing you're gonna. I need you to constantly check me on. I've, I've been doing it more and more. Where I'll go to say like 2004 and I'll say 2014 or 2006. And I'll say 2016. But 
but I, I want to say they like drafted him in twenty or uh, two thousand two or two thousand and three. He was in the organization until the trade, but he was just a, you know a right-handed hitting, good-sized uh, guy who all of a sudden you know he had doubles power and home run power, and like you said, it manifested in Springfield in Double A, and then at the time, the, and the reason I said uh, you know that time. At the time, the Cardinals didn't have prospects. There wasn't such a thing as, like, prospects in the Cardinals organization. Uh, the prospects in the Cardinals organization were, like, you know, Terry Evans. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he ever made an MLB debut. He did. I, he did with the Angels. After they traded, I, I feel like he got brought up and then got removed from the 40-man and then, like, kicked around in a couple different places. I just assume that eventually all Cardinals prospects play in Oakland at some point. Steven <laughs> uh, Piscotti and Nick Martini included. Yeah, Anthony Garcia. Like the list, the list just never stops. Um, but anyway, he was just like he was a super athletic outfielder who struck out a lot and all of a sudden had power at doubles and home runs. Like, I, let me put it this way: with Terry Evans, if Terry <laughs> Evans were in the Cardinals organization right now, everyone would be going bonkers over him. Uh, his, his strikeout rate was high, I think, at the time, uh, but he had power at home runs and doubles at the same level that someone like Stephen Piscotty had, if not more than that. If actually, if not double that, and uh, then faded into oblivion. Yeah, he has a forty-five career OPS plus. So the two trades I really hated when I was a kid was the Jeff Weaver trade that won the World Series and the Matt Holiday trade. That locked up uh, the third hitter for seven years. So basically, oh, if the Cardinals trade prospects and I like the trade, run, <laughs> run, run as far as you can. It's a terrible trade. If I hate the trade, then Mo did a damn good job. That's basically how you should judge Mo's deadline deals based on you know, past history. I uh, I was so dabber down on the holiday trade. I had bought so heavy into Brett Wallace. and Dude, he I'd was also- so good, but he could not play catch. I would go to Springfield games, and he could not play catch. Like, they would not let him play catch if he was not on the line because fans would be, like, lined up for autographs, and he would just drill them with the ball with overdrives. I, I respect that so much. That's, that's the person that I am. Uh, I was uh, 10 years old and thought, this guy can't throw a baseball. <laughs> and then you couple, like, how I had bought in with Brett Wallace to the, the narrative that was being pushed about Matt Holliday not being able to play anywhere outside of Colorado because of how bad he was in Oakland. And I just thought that it was the most miserable possible trade. And, uh, yeah, I was wrong about that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was in a GameStop when I got the news of that trade, and I thought, this is the dumbest thing we've ever done. He's going to leave. His, <laughs> that was when I thought players were going to leave as free agents. Now I think they're going to stay and they leave. So pretty much – I'm wrong about everything. It just proves that you just never know what's going to happen in baseball, man. Yeah. No freaking kidding. So, um, what were we talking about before we started on the Terry Evans thing? <laughs> it really doesn't matter, Colin. We pretty much ruined this conversation. Yeah. Um, so, if you're still listening, we can pretty much go anywhere with this. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned there was a pitcher in State College that you liked. I think his name was Ron Doan. I wanted to like him. But I watched the first two innings, and he gave up, like, a bunch of hits. And I don't know if they're necessarily, like, just, you know, bad luck hits or if he was actually bad. But, like, I was like, oh, this stuff looks good. And then, like, they hit a home run and a double, and I was like, oh, maybe his stuff isn't that good. Yeah. Yeah, Angel Rondon. 
and he uh, he has a really really aggressive motion that needs to be cleaned up quite a bit. Uh, but he he has some filthy stuff, and then the minute I told you, wow, Rondon's been filthy, he uh, just got absolutely murdered. It was just, <laughs> it, was, it was terrible, man. It was, Short season baseball was, is so weird. Yeah, but anyways, well, I think what we were talking about more than anything was we were just talking about like how how the uh, the short season clubs have been doing, uh, like how to manage expectations, you know, and that's that's how we got into Terry Evans. Um, it, what I was saying before then is just keep an eye on how players are being used when they're being used. Try not to think anything into uh, them not playing for a while. Though so the only person that I would say is worth meriting a second look is Terry Fuller. Because Terry Fuller was assigned to the Gulf Coast League team, and he has yet to play. And I have not, doing a little bit of digging, I have not been able to find out why he hasn't played. Uh, that has me concerned. Now, don't be too concerned. A lot of things happen at that level. Uh, just just know that it's uncharacteristic for a player, a rostered player, not to play. I don't know if that's injury-related or something else, Uh you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that with any 18 to 20 year old player who isn't playing, that is basically based out of the primary facility in Jupiter, Florida. Uh, sometimes they don't play because they're working on something, and that could very well be the case with Terry Fuller. But aside from that, just don't invest too much in a like, like we say it all the time. Don't invest too much in the stats at the short season level, and uh, don't invest too much into playing time at the short season level as well. Yeah, short season, short season baseball is just oh, it's so weird. It's so weird. Uh, yeah. things that go on are so weird. Um, and Mundo Sosa hits ten home runs, and it's weird. So you mentioned something to me today about Kisner, and I was really curious as to why because I, I hit a home run the other night. Other than that, I don't. To me, nothing with Kisner has changed since we last talked about him. Um, well. So my thought was, you know, in the circling back to Kisner is the last time we recorded this two weeks ago, we said, um, you know, we wouldn't be surprised even though he isn't doing any slugging if all of a sudden he's hitting, you know, by the next time we record. And that's exactly what's going on. Uh, you know, it gives us an opportunity to pat ourselves on the back for the <laughs> proclamations we made. And that proclamation being that all of a sudden Andrew Kisner would be hitting for a little bit of power. And you see his average increase by the next time we talk, and that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, I, like I, I'm not worried about Andrew Kisner. He's the last player I'm worried about in the system right now, probably. Um, I am just super hesitant with any catching prospect right now that they're going to do the same thing to him as they did to Carson Kelly because, like, Andrew Kisner is getting to the point where, like, he needs to be in AAA. You know, maybe a, a, you know another month at Double A if he keeps slugging um, is warranted, I guess, possibly. But at, the, at some point, he's going to force his way to Triple A, and then I mean, Molina's still got two years left on his contract. Like, at some point, it's going to be Kisner who gets called up to sit the bench. And oh gosh, can you imagine them doing that to two catchers? I mean, I could imagine it. I hope they don't, but I could definitely see that in the future. Yeah, I, I sure hope it doesn't happen. That's the one positive thing about having Carson Kelly in the organization is at least it serves as a buffer for that kind of treatment of Andrew Kisner. I still think that the Cardinals will resort to moving him to a different position before it gets to that point, um, mostly because of how much contact he makes and how he's able to drive the ball to all fields. 
you know, I think that they see the value in that. Uh, you know, kind of branching off of that, there, there are two things that, two people that I want to bring up, and I keep bringing them up uh, with the Molina timetable because everyone keeps saying Kisner's on a better timetable to be Molina's replacement than, than Kelly is. You know, I maintain that neither of those guys are. Uh, both of those guys should be his replacement right now, thus negating them in the timeline. The two guys to keep an eye on are Dennis Ortega at Peoria and Ivan Herrera at Johnson City. Uh, Ortega is a monster behind the plate. He still has some things to work on, but he's getting the reputation that you don't even try to steal on him. Uh, he, he made a spectacle of the All-Star game because he threw out one of the fastest runners in the Midwest League All-Star game by like three feet. Uh, it, by three steps, I mean. It was incredible. I've been trying to gif it, but I keep forgetting to do it. Uh, and Ivan Herrera, who is somewhat of a bat-first catcher, who's, I think he's only, he might only be 18, he's either 18 or 19, who has not stopped hitting since entering the organization as an international free agent. Uh, again, I, I'm not worried, just like you said, I'm not worried about Kisner. It's nice to see him adding the doubles, and he hit a ball off the top of the wall yesterday. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing tonight. Like Those are, those are all positive things. Those are what we want to see out of him. And the good news with Kisner is uh, there is a potential for a position change that should stop him from being corralled the way that Carson Kelly was corralled last year. That's good to hear. And I, You're right. It does get the feeling that like someone like Ortega, who's just, like, a, like you said, a defensive monster, um, fits that timetable a little better because they're not going to move them. They don't feel like if, they, you know, if they're struggling and they need offense. I mean, I could very well see not this year, but maybe next year, if Kisner's raking in, in AAA, that yeah. he's the bat that everybody's looking at his AAA numbers and saying, bring this guy up. Sort of like Piscotty was a couple years ago, I think 2015. I ended up like trying him at first base because he was hitting so well in, in the PCL that they had to bring him up, basically, after they tried Dan Johnson, and shocker, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that didn't work very well. Um, I can't remember where I was going to go with this after that. But, yeah, I yeah, – No, you were, you were talking, oh, you were talking the other about thing, the other thing I was going to talk about, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was listening to Shoot to Danny Mac, and he's destroying all of our podcasts because his are so good. But he huh. mentioned – and he's not one to mention things off the cuff, but he mentioned that the organization thought Evan Mendoza was the real deal, was the exact quote. And that really stood out to me because, I, to me, like Danny Mac just doesn't say that kind of stuff unless he actually knows that the organization thinks that Evan Mendoza is a stud, right? Yeah. Like he seems like someone who's very, very measured in what he says, especially about things like that. Um, and that just stood out to me. I take it for what it's worth. Danny Mac said that, not me. Like to <laughs> me, he's just someone who still has an hit for power, and I want to see him hit for power before it's all said and done. But on the other hand. Um, the, the club has access to all that track man data and, and they're, you know, keeping track of him closer than we are. And so maybe there's something there, but I think that was definitely worth mentioning. Yeah. And the other thing I will say, uh, just to keep in mind when evaluating the, uh, Danny Mac comments is that part, and I, I have not listened to his podcast because I'm terribly scared and intimidated by how great I'm sure they are. I love Danny Mac. The one with Jim Edmonds was absolutely amazing. All right, that one I will definitely check out. I, I'll listen to anything your amendments is on. Oh, ball game's great. Uh, but keep in mind that also, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. McLaughlin talks with Brian Walton of the Cardinal Nation uh, once weekly. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if he's getting some of his information from Brian Walton, not just the organization, although I do think that there is a substantial merit behind thinking that the information's coming from the organization. And also, it's validating because you know where I've been on Evan Mendoza. I I love Evan Mendoza. I, I had him, like, I think I ranked him 20th in the 30-30 to start the year. I, you know, I you can see it. He has the potential to be a flashy third baseman. And he's he's progressed at a young age rapidly and held his own beyond expectations. Uh, and he got off to such a great start last year in the organization. And it seems like he's up for every challenge. And uh, that's a validating thing. I, I love that. Um, again, just like with all of these players, I would very much like to see them I'd like to see them get the time. Like, you go back to Andrew Kisner. You know, this is, this is, he hasn't been in the organization very long, right? This is only his second full season in the organization, and we're clamoring for him to get to the major leagues, and he's advanced, and he, he has a major league bat, and, and all of that stuff. But there was a time when this stuff would never happen, where we wouldn't be talking about a player making his major league, major league debut in the first three seasons of him in the organization. And it seems like those players that we were a little bit more patient with stuck around a little bit longer. You know, they, they were effective a little bit longer. And I think that that's, I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that that's like, that's an actual trend. You know, I, I think part of the reason Stephen Piscotty peaked and then faded, granted he was going through some terrible family stuff, uh, but he faded before he was going through the family stuff. And I think part of the reason is, even though he appeared to be ready, he wasn't foolproof ready. I just, I want to see an organizational philosophy where they like, they almost have their, like they have, like it's at the point where they're like, like right now Tyler O'Neill should be in the major leagues. You know, granted Dexter Fowler had a great day today. Harrison Bader had a great day today. But like Tyler O'Neill's at the point in his development where he needs to be at the major leagues and you need to see, like I want to see them doing that with all of their players. You know, Instead I, I of bringing Magnaris Sierra from... Wherever he came from last year? Yeah, single A, from single A, from Palm Beach. But beyond that, like, Jairo Munoz. Like, Jairo Munoz was not ready for the major leagues. And I will say, with Munoz, though, I do feel like there's more of a need. I feel like they needed Munoz after Dion got hurt. Like, I guess they could have gone to Alex Mejia? No, no, like, I'm, I'm saying at, like, the season onset. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay, like, right now, of course, he has to be in the major leagues because of the Young injury. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, like, I would agree. Like that, it, it's really tantalizing to like bring those guys up out of a spring training where they're really hot. And in spring training, when it's the first baseball that we've seen in months, it's hard to remind yourself that it's spring training and it doesn't mean anything. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think you're right. But and at the time, but at the time, I think even the front office kind of gets sucked into. We've been watching Jairo Munoz rake for six weeks. Exactly. But. Exactly. And I guess all I'm saying is that I wanted to feel like, all right, this guy can't do anything else. Like, he can't yeah, do like anything what, else. Yeah, like, what are we going to do with him? Exactly. I, I like that. I, back to the Mendoza point, I feel like his ceiling is David Freeze with maybe less power, but a really, really good third baseman. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of parallels to be drawn between him and Anthony Rondon. Like, I, I, I think he's that kind of defender when he finally, like, reaches his ultimate ceiling as a defender at third base. I think he has potential for, you know, 45 extra base hits in a season, 50 extra base hits in a season, depending on how that comes. 
you know, I, I, I think that, that he could potentially be that kind of player. It's just, I see all the warning signs of what we're seeing from players that are peaking early in the major leagues and then fall off uh, that the Cardinals have brought up. Gritchick, Mendoza, Piscotti. Yeah, I mean, Gritchick's twenty fifteen was incredible. People tend to forget, like his twenty fifteen was like legitimately. He was a great player in twenty fifteen. Uh huh. Yeah, at one point, what was it? Entering twenty sixteen, they had him in like the top fifty of like MLB.com or MLB Network did their top hundred players in baseball, and he was like in the top fifty or top seventy five or something like well, that. Like, you could that. make the argument at that time, like you could look at like the slugging percentage and say, like, okay, well, Gritchick played fewer games, so we're not going to look at the counting stats. But if you looked at the rate stats, he was as good as Chris Bryant. Yeah. Like I remember that being tossed around. Like my cup, my cup fan friends would be like, "This is really stupid," and I'm like, "Hey, I'm not about to defend that." <laughs> like, like, but but that thing was out there. And, like the numbers were there that you could make it believable. And but I do think that you're right and you're onto something to where that last month, that last two months, that last three months of AAA is really, really beneficial because that at that point it's all fine tuning. Yeah. Right? And that's the stuff that's going to separate someone from a Randall Gritchick-like career to someone who has a long David Fries-like career. Yeah. I, I, what I'm getting at is I don't want a player to be good before they get called up. I want them to be mind-blowing good. And, and I don't feel like the Cardinals have been in that position. Like, Gritchick aside, because the Gritchick-Tavares, you know, going back to that offseason when Gritchick entered the organization, like, that's that's a whole a whole different bag of worms. But like even Piscotti, sure he was hitting for he was hitting for average and he was getting on base, but the power wasn't there. And it was modest. It was like he either had thirteen home runs when he got called up or eleven or something like that. I I don't want that anymore. I, I want to see Evan Mendoza in June have fifteen home runs before he you know at Triple A and slashing three hundred, three fifty, you know. 500. Like, I want to see that before it gets called up because he's going to be capable of that uh, eventually. It's just, if he's hitting 270, you know, 340 with a, a modest slugging percentage, that's not enough, even if everything else looks good. He's, he's young for the age, you know, or he's young for the, uh, for the level. Like, there's nothing wrong with waiting until a player is 23 or 24 to call him up to the major. There's nothing wrong with that. And I feel like because all of this stuff is so accessible now, we as fans have a tendency to clamor for him and the organization to collapse on that clamor. Yeah, there was a time where I wouldn't really know a prospect until Fox Sports Midwest would mention them, and that meant that they were absolutely burning it down at AAA. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Tri- like Fox Sports Midwest isn't about to mention somebody sitting, you know, 280 with, you know, decent pop. Like, you got to be yeah. really tearing it up for them to bring you up. And there was a point where, like, they wouldn't really I, – I felt like they wouldn't really consider a promotion until that point, and that was probably for the better. And I think everything you just said puts in perspective how freaking good Paul DeYoung has been. Yeah. Because he did not get any of that. I, look, you won't get an argument out of me. You know how valuable I think Paul DeYoung is to this team. Uh, love that Paul DeYoung. Yeah, I, I can't believe until, like, I, I thought he was good, hit some home runs. 
And like as soon as he left, I was like, holy smokes. Paul DeYoung snuck up on me and makes every play shortstop. Yeah. Paul DeYoung snuck up on me and take out those first two weeks of the season and has great at-bats very consistently. Uh-huh. And it's like, what happened to the point where Paul DeYoung is the most complete player on this team? <laughs> that's, great. Uh, that's crazy to say. That's absolutely crazy to say after last year, but he has. And uh-huh. honestly, based on what I've read about him, I'm not surprised. Uh, I shouldn't be surprised. I am surprised, but I'm, I shouldn't be. Because he just seems like the type of guy that would just continue, continue to improve. Yeah. Yeah, he's dedicated to his craft, man. He'll find any way to get an advantage. Anyway, I, I'm i kind of out of things to talk about unless you want to bring something up. Some more mid-2000s prospects that we could talk about? Yeah, let's talk about John Golf a little bit if we can. No, I think, uh, I think <laughs> Jeff, you know, the, the one that always comes to my mind is Jeff Todd. I always think of P.J. Walters, or uh, J.P. Walters. I don't even remember what the abbreviation was. It was P.J. Was. It was definitely P.J. Yeah. Yeah, my bad. Uh, Mr. Walters and Mr. Todd are always the first two that come to my mind right away. But, uh, yeah, the Cardinals used to have really bad farm systems. and must be happy that they don't have it anymore. <laughs> I remember Josh Kinney being in Springfield for like the five years after he pitched in the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> that always blew my mind. I'm like, weren't you like striking out Tigers like not that long ago in one World Series? And he was in Springfield for a really long time. That's my yeah, memory of those years. Well, you know, to make it, well, the one last thing we'll talk about in the minor leagues, you bring up Josh Kinney, pitching at Springfield, and here we are tonight with Springfield, and Austin Warner is making his Springfield debut. Uh, a former independent league baseball player, played for the River City Rascals. Former uh, GLVC a, baseball player, my conference. There you go. Yeah. He went so, to Bellarmine in Kentucky. Uh-huh. It, the reason I want to end on it is it just goes to show you that you never know where you're going to find them, you know. And there's no telling that Austin Warner is going to ever make it to the major league. But he's two levels away, and he's older. And, you know, if a couple things fall weird, he could be pitching out of a bullpen at any point. Or he could end up being absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baseball's freaking crazy, huh? That's right, buddy. Anyway, also, the last thing I want to say is Alan Craig is tearing it up for the Padres ah. AAA team. Call up Alan Craig, okay? San Diego, what are you playing for? Your manager walked the winning run to first base. He did the Mike Matheny. He intentionally walked Buster Posey, the winning run. You have one of the best relievers in baseball. You still lost the game. You got nothing to lose. Bring up Alan Craig. If I would have known this, you should have brought him up before the Cardinals series. Let him get his ovation. Okay, but you didn't. Bring him up. Let that man play in the major leagues. He he's hey, you got a guy on second and two outs. He's still the one guy I want up in any situation. Um, <laughs> but he's, I love that Alan Craig. Anyway, Colin, what position is Alan Craig playing these days? I don't know, and I don't really <laughs> care. They use the DH in the minor leagues. Um, he's he's got to be playing first, right? Like, there's no way he can still play be. outfield. Well, here's, here's what you do, is you play him at second. Because there's no way between Will Myers and Eric Hosmer that San Diego has a spot for him. Oh, so you um, play him at second. San Diego should have lost that game because Eric Hosmer botched a ground ball. Like, it was a high chopper, and he backed up on it, and it had spin, and just ate him up and went down the line. And it was a leadoff. I mean, Joe Panic was on second with nobody out, so it wasn't a double. But And I thought, I was for some reason, I was watching that game on MLB.tv this afternoon, and it was just a... Very, very interesting game. It was for all the wrong reasons. It was an interesting game. 
Yeah, that's terrible. When Don't watch Black Tony Black also Black. put Alan Craig in center field in Wrigley. So <laughs> Alan Craig can play anywhere, and he's going to drive in. Hey, he'll drive in 100 runs. You give him the chance. But Oh, God. That's terrible. Damn C.B. Buckner for getting his way at first base. It's all his fault. Stupid C-Bank. Otherwise, Alan Craig would be getting fished for the red jacket. Yeah, that's right. Oh, God. <laughs> Alan Craig and Ryan Terrio getting their red jackets together. Hey, he hit three home runs in the 2011 World Series. Never forget that. Oh, I know. I know. Lots of home runs, too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's it. I think that's enough for one night. A lot of Terry Evans and Alan Craig talk. So if that's your thing, then you came to our place. Uh, this has been another episode of Prospect Named Later. Uh, Kyle's Prospect After Dark is this Thursday, if I'm if I'm correct. So definitely that's tune into plan. that. Um, you know, if you want a, a more um, intoxicated Kyle, that's probably your place <laughs> to go. Um, check out our podcast. The uh, former episodes are all up there on iTunes or SoundCloud. Uh, Kyle's stuff is over at Birds on the Black. My stuff's over at Redbird Daily. Uh, definitely go check it out. We appreciate it. Please subscribe and review. We appreciate that as well. Thanks for listening tonight and talk to you soon.